Our scripture today comes from the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion." These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage." But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
And I need to say thank you to several of you that I'm looking around the room who normally come at 930 who decided to shift to the 11 a.m. service. Welcome. It's good to have you and thank you for helping us out with their crowdedness at 930. So grateful. Um, This morning we continue in this short series from this uh, tiny letter uh, from Jude that Jude wrote and as we do, we uh, look at the, uh, the title of the sermon today is, If You Don't Stand for Something, You Will Fall for Anything. That phrase, when you trace it back, first appeared um, in 1945, most folks think, in the most prominent way. In 1945, there was a Dr. Edie who was writing to veterans who were uh, coming home already from the war, and they had confused thinking. And in their confused thinking, as a matter of fact, the uh, reference uh, is to an article uh, that talks about mental hygiene. And in their confused thinking, he uh, wrote to them and said that, um, that they needed to consider not only what they uh, were fighting for, but what they were fighting against. He says, we are trying to show him, the veteran, not only what we are fighting against, but what we are fighting for. So many of these boys have only a very hazy idea of the real issues of the war. About all they see is going back to the good old days. This is a dangerous state. If they don't stand for something, they will fall for anything. They need to realize that we are fighting two wars, the war of arms and the war of ideas, that other war of which the war of arms is one phase. And so uh, the uh, Second World War was quite complex. And so it is that Jude writes in much the same way and says, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. And so you need to know who or what you're for, and that will help you to know who or what you are against. It is the necessity that you know both. Who are you fighting for and what or whom are we contending against? Uh, I am told that and researched it this week and confirmed that when folks are trained to look at counterfeit money, they first look at the real thing and spend quite a bit of time studying the real thing before they begin to examine that which isn't real. And so this is what you talks about. Uh, He says, I'm eager to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write a positive letter, Jude says. He didn't want to write what's in front of you. But I couldn't. There were pressing issues that called uh, for my attention. I had to write about something else. And the something else was to contend for the faith and to contend against the enemies of the faith. And so what does it look like to contend for the faith? Well, there are 14 words in this little letter that appear nowhere else in the New Testament. And here is one of them. It is a combination of prefix and another word that does appear other places. And if I say the second word, perhaps it will sound familiar because it is similar to one of our English words. This word contend, agonizomai, or to agonize. To agonize, to contend is to agonize, but Jude puts a little prefix in front of it, which means over and above. So he says, contend 
for the faith over and above. So some translations render it earnestly contend for the faith. I want to say to you this morning that when you read the whole of the New Testament and even the Old, we are not called to a playground It is a battlefield. War terminology occurs all throughout Scripture, and it definitely occurs here. To contend for the faith is to take up arms, not physical arms, uh, but to uh, fight for the faith. This word agonizomai occurs in Timothy, uh, the first and the second. In the first, Paul says, fight the good fight. That's the same word. In the second Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. Uh, Same word, it means to fight, to take up arms. Notice how the faith is described, though, that was once for all delivered to the saints. This word delivered means entrusted, handed over. It's something you couldn't buy, something you couldn't earn. It was given to us. So what is it? What is this faith? I want to say to you this morning that in the context of all of this letter, Jude isn't talking about your personal faith per se. He's talking about the faith in its theological sense. We might say he's talking about the gospel. The faith is the gospel. And every time you hear the word gospel, most likely you think death and resurrection of Jesus, and you're right. But the gospel is not only what happened, but the implications of it. You say, what do you mean? The faith is that you are so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. And so loved, he was glad to die for you. That's the gospel. That's the faith. You are so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. So loved, he was glad to die for you. And at the center of this faith is none other than Jesus Christ. You say, how so? Listen to what Jude says. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, this is fascinating, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude gives Jesus credit for rescuing people out of Egypt. That's what he does. Now, when we talk about theology, we talk about Christology, the study of Christ. And I want to uh, say to you this morning that my guess is that our Christology is way too low. And that Jude reminds us of a statement that Jesus made in John 8, 58. And it makes me wonder if Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, heard Jesus make this statement. Before Abraham was, I am. This Jesus that died on the cross and resurrected pre-existed the screaming baby that came out of Mary's womb. This Jesus was Jesus uh, who was among the Trinity when God said, let us make man in our image. Jesus is the creative word of creation. 
And it is this Jesus who led Israel out of Egypt. That's what Jude is saying here. A rather remarkable claim. Paul would agree. 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, what cloud is he talking about here? It's, it's not the IBM cloud or uh, the Verizon cloud. It is the cloud that led Israel in the daytime. And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Christ. So Paul puts Christ there. Jude puts Jesus there. Then I'm guessing if Paul and Jude agree, then Jesus was there. Amen? He is the pre-incarnate Christ. All right, but then there is something that is quite troubling about Jude's statement. Maybe you missed it. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Please hear me well. It is possible to be rescued out of Egypt and die not entering the promised land. That's what Jude says. The same Jesus who rescued Wow, destroyed. You say, well, Jerry, I, I don't quite like that. What do you think that means? It is possible to get out of Egypt and never get Egypt out of you. It's very possible. Please hear me. We're in the South. This is what you do on Sunday. You come to church. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into a garage makes you a car. It doesn't. And this is quite clear. Jesus goes into Egypt, rescues people out of Egypt, but those people are never rescued out of their own sinful heart. What happened? Well, they come out of Egypt, they travel across the Red Sea, they go south into the Sinai Peninsula, and there at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments. It's a long story, but he comes down, uh, and then he leads the people up to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is a town about halfway between the Sinai Peninsula and the Dead Sea. That's where they're to cross the Jordan River. And so he leads them to Kadesh Barnea. And at Kadesh Barnea, they send a dozen spies into the promised land. So from there, they send the spies into the promised land. And the spies go into the promised land, not to see if they should conquer it. God has said you will, but it's reconnaissance work. How should you go about it? That's the question. So a dozen of them go in and they go across the Jordan River and they do the reconnaissance work and they trek back down south to Kadesh Barnea and when they get back to Kadesh Barnea, they give a report. And so out of the 12, all right, so we'll pretend you're my Old Testament class here. Out of the 12, how many came back with a bad report class? 10. 
And that leaves how many with a good report? Two. All right, so what are the names of the two who came back with the good report? What are they? Joshua and Caleb. And what are the names of the ten who came back with a bad report? Nobody knows because they're losers. It's true. Nobody's combing the Bible to find those ten dudes' names to name their kids after. Why? Who wants to name your kid after a loser? It's true. Nobody knows their names. But how many Joshua's do you know? How many Caleb's do you know? Why? We want to name our kids after those guys, right? So we got these 10 dudes who, who come back and they're, they're, they're crying and we can't do it and they're giants in the land and it's awful and it's just going to be terrible. And, and, and the panic just spreads throughout the entire people and they say, hey, we're not going to do what God tells us we, uh, he has brought us out of Egypt to do. And then this most remarkable thing happens. Everyone except for Joshua and Caleb over the age of 20 dies for 40 years there are hundreds of thousands of funerals. And they die in the wilderness. Unreal. It's unreal. Funeral after funeral after funeral. It's about a 12-day journey from Kadesh Barnea up to the Jordan River. It took 40 years. Why? It's possible, one commentator says, to be circumcised in the flesh as they all were when they left Egypt and not be circumcised in the heart. It's possible to mentally assent and spiritually rebel. It's possible to believe facts and not embrace faith. It is. As a matter of fact, Paul would say in Romans 10, 9 and 10, in in a remarkable summary statement on how one is saved, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth one confesses and with the heart one believes. What is Paul saying? There is the mental ascent and there is the heart change. And they must coincide. It's not one or the other. It's both. Or Ezekiel, who is writing to the exiles. This is late in Israel's history in the Old Testament. Chapter 36, verses 26 through 28. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You're hard-hearted. I'm going to give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. The only way this happens is if there's a change of heart. It's the only way. So the reason perhaps that you do not contend for the faith is that you don't have the faith. That's entirely possible in this room of good people. Maybe you have your parents' faith. 
your boyfriend or your girlfriend's faith. Tiny little book, I think published last year by Jerry Bridges called Bookends to the Christian Life. Fantastic. In it, he identifies three enemies of the cross, three enemies of the gospel. Self-righteousness is enemy number one. I'm good enough. Persistent guilt is self-righteous distant cousin which says, I'll never be good enough. Both of those ideas are rooted in the thought that you think maybe you could be good enough at some point. And then the third enemy is self-reliance. I can do it myself. Well, the gospel says we are so sinful. Jesus had to die for us and so loved. He was glad to die for us. That's something you cannot do yourself. Even Ezekiel says, I'll put that heart in you. I'll put it in you. So contend for the faith. Contend against the enemies of the faith. Notice how Jude describes them. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. This is an inside job. These are enemies outside the church. These are enemies inside the church. They have crept in and nobody noticed. So uh, we'll go, there's no way to cover everything that he covers here. It's unreal. But we'll look at who they are, uh, we'll look at what they do, and we'll look at what's going to happen to them, okay? So who are they? Listen to how he describes them. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. What's a hidden reef? It's a reef that a boat doesn't see until it's crashed into it, and the boat is wrecked already. It's too late. Um, these are uh, a people who are deceptive and they draw you in and they're at your love feast, which is the communion, the way that was described in his day. They're there. They draw you in. They lure you in, but, but they do not preach the gospel. Secondly, they are shepherds feeding themselves. Ezekiel also alluded to these shepherds who fed themselves. Please hear me. My job as your pastor is to feed you. It is to provide to you nourishment from God's word. And I have a choice. I can go into my study and work diligently to provide for you a well-balanced meal. Or we could go with the latest and greatest fast food, right? We can throw out to you the things that taste good but leave you uh, still hungry. And you could easily leave here and uh, say, wow, that felt good or wow, that tasted good or wow, Jerry this or Jerry that. But it is then derelict in my duty not to preach to you the truth even when you don't like it. They are waterless clouds. Keep in mind, this is the desert. So the cloud promises rain, but comes up and you hope for rain and the wind blows the cloud away. They're waterless clouds. Uh, this one is hilarious when you read it. I can imagine that Jude might be a tad angry. He didn't want to write about this. Don't forget that, right? He, he wanted to write about the good things of salvation. 
not these knuckleheads. Listen to this. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Uh, That's about as dead as you can be. You've waited all season for the apple tree to have apples. It didn't yield apples. Pull the thing up, throw it on the ground. It's dead because it didn't produce fruit and dead because it's now lying on the ground. Uh, That's not a compliment. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I go to the beach, I don't like to wade through sea foam. It's gross. This is what these people are. They spew out sea foam, and it ought to be truth. And then finally, they're wandering stars. In Jude's day, as in today, stars were used to navigate. These wonder. And so if you follow it here, you may end up over there when you were planning to go there because the star is ever moving. We don't need to really elaborate on Jude's description of them, do we? It's quite clear. What do they do? They pervert God's grace into sensuality, verse 4, and they defile the flesh, verse 8. They preach a grace that says, you can do anything you want. Anything. That's what they do. Romans 6, 1 says, what? Then should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Paul answers his own question, of course not. How can we who died as far as sin is concerned go on living in it? Do you not know that all those who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So a grace that says, hey, God is just a big loving grandpa in the sky. You do whatever you want. This is what they preach. This is what they do. They pervert God's grace into sensuality. Secondly, they deny Jesus as Lord, verse 4, reject authority, verse 8. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's their tone. That's their attitude. No authority in my life. The third thing they do is quite interesting. They presume upon God's power. At the end of 8 and 9, let me read, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Well, this is fascinating. On more than one occasion, Jude quotes from an old writing by Enoch. On more than one occasion, it's not in the Bible, Uh, But it doesn't mean it doesn't have some value to understanding what happened in the early Old Testament times. Here is presumably the thought that when Moses died, Satan, who is always the accuser, showed up and said, I ought to have his body. He is undeserving of a proper burial. Why? Because he committed murder. So Satan is refusing to allow God to redeem Moses, right? That's his thinking. He's a murderer. He shouldn't get a proper burial. I should get his body. This is from Enoch so that I can bury him. But the angel's response is interesting, and it must be noted. 
the angel. This is Michael, the archangel. And so in heaven's organization, Michael would have been right nose to nose with Lucifer, with Satan. All right? He would have been nose to nose with him. And though he was, he refused to look at Satan and rebuke him himself. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Well, that's fascinating. Why? Because there are some who would teach you, and I've heard people pray this. I've never quite gotten it. As they are praying against Satan and his work, I hear people in their prayers automatically switch and start talking to Satan. I rebuke you. Well, who are you to rebuke Satan? If Michael, the archangel, isn't going to rebuke Satan, then newsflash, probably you shouldn't either. We might ought to defer this one to God who who can take him on, right? That probably isn't your job. Reminds me of... uh, in college, I, I, you know, I grew up so sheltered. Then I went to college, and it was like Katie bar the door. Now, I know it's not all the things you're thinking. I'm just talking. I'd never been to a ball game until I went to college. No lie. I was that sheltered. And so I end up uh, at our basketball games. And, and, and uh, I just think, I mean, you just make up for years of lost time of yelling, so that's what I did, and I, I gathered a crew. I used my leadership gifts to make sure others joined me uh, in this. And uh, we, we did this awful thing as I reflect on it as a parent of a, uh, of a child who's been an athlete and, and uh, another kid who plays. Uh, we would ahead of time, this is prior to Internet, so we had our sources. Uh, we would ahead of time get the roster of the other basketball team, and upon discovering all their names and numbers, we gave them new names and we sat right behind their bench and when they went in we found it necessary to rename them depending on whatever we thought would work for that and I remember in this certain game where we had uh, done that quite well uh, uh, so much so that 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 we credited ourselves for the whole shift in the game it's just that we weren't quite aware Um, that the parents of those kids were sitting behind us. And so, which made it not a very wise decision. And so game is over and I turn to leave and I'm surrounded by a bunch of angry dads. And they looked at me and I'm standing there and they said, son, we want to take this outside. Well, where I grew up, that meant fight. I mean, that's how I interpreted it, and I was right. (laughs) I got that piece right. And I remember standing there, it was just me and all my friends that I had led to do the same thing were gone, and it was just me. And I'm standing there, and I'm surrounded by these these players, or these parents, and they said, come on. And then I looked, and I caught out of the corner of my eye about four big football players. And they looked at me. And we communicated just by a glance. And they went, I went. (laughs) And here they came. And they walked down. I still remember this. And they walked down the bleachers. And they got to where I was. And they said, Jerry, do we have a problem? I said, not now. (laughs) And they looked at these. I said, these people want to take it outside. And they said, they do? I said, yeah. Yeah. 
They want to take it outside. He, they said, hey, you go on. We got these people. Thank the Lord. <laughs> right? That's what Michael, the archangel, says. I can't myself say, I rebuke you. That's God's work. Now, how huge is this? It's a quote of Zechariah 3, and we can't miss it. Because in Zechariah 3, there's another Joshua. He's a high priest. Let me read it to you. Uh, Zechariah has a vision. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And look at this. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And then he looks at Joshua and says, Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? What does he mean by that? Well, that's not a compliment in case you're wondering. He's just calling him like a charred piece of wood. What's his point, Satan? Like, you, you know, you, you get your thrills from rebuking a charred piece of wood? That's his point. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Say, so, Jerry, what is the point? Here is the point. That when you have truly confessed your sin, you see the seriousness and the awfulness of it, and you have truly received Christ as your Savior, the number one attack of the enemy is to convince you that Christ isn't good enough. That somehow you have to make your own self righteous. And the only answer for that comes from the Lord rebuke you. And the Lord rebuke you in Zechariah 3 equals get the dirty clothes off of him and put some new on. Just this week, I was privileged to go to the county jail to visit someone. I walked in and uh, walked behind into that little room and sat there, and the door closed behind me, and I sat on the little metal stool, thick glass separating us, a little black phone to my left, the old traditional-looking phone. In walked the young man. In his orange jumpsuit, he sat down on the little metal stool on the other side. He smiled immediately. He picked up the phone, punched in his number. We began to talk. He said, it is so good to see you and to hear your voice. He and I had talked on the phone a couple of times since he's been in for maybe two months now. First time I've been able to see him. I said, it is so good to see you too. How are you doing? He said, I know this seems so strange to you, but I don't know if I could be better. He said, do you remember that little book you sent me, that bookends to the Christian life book? Yeah, I do. He said, I started reading that. He said, I devoured it. Actually, couldn't get enough of it. 
And when I did, I discovered that first bookend is my righteousness isn't mine. It's Christ. And he said, it's the first time I've ever gotten that. And he said, I know this sounds totally cliche. I know it does. He said, but, and I've heard people say, I found freedom in jail. He said, but I have. And I sat there as we talked, and I looked at him in his orange jumpsuit. And I thought, I see orange. God sees red. When God looks at him, he's robed in the righteousness of Christ. It's hard for me to get past the orange jumpsuit. It's impossible for God to see it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. But standing somewhere over in the corner is Satan, the accuser. Look what you did. Look what a fool you've been. You think God can forgive you for that? And his intention is to get you away from the righteousness of Christ to one of two enemies. Self-righteousness? Well, I've got to be good. Or persistent guilt? I'll never be good enough. It was such a good visit. Such a good visit. The, the last thing Jude says is what's going to happen to these enemies. He says, verse 3, they were long ago designated for condemnation. So though you may not see it now, God will take them out. He says in verse 15, God will judge them and God will convict them. And we have no time to go into it today, but he gives illustrations like Cain, like Korah, like Sodom and Gomorrah. These aren't lists you want to be on in the Old Testament. That's how God is going to judge them. So this brings us to the question, and you ought to note this. How can you detect the enemies of the faith? I'm going to give you four Questions, they're criterion questions. Number one, and this is for folks you may podcast or see on television or you may read their writings. This week, five different people have reached out to me about, well, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? In all five cases, they didn't meet the criteria. Number one, do they take sin seriously? Do they take sin seriously? Number two, do they take grace seriously? Serious sin calls for serious grace. Number three, I borrow from J.D. Greer. Do they measure God's compassion by the crucifixion and his power? 
by the resurrection? Do they measure God's compassion by the crucifixion and his power by the resurrection? Number four, is the Bible their ultimate authority? Is the Bible their final authority? Now, one of the persons who reached out to me had read what a so-called pastor wrote in the Morganton newspaper. He evidently feels a need to address the issue of the flood uh, in Houston, and so he's, I think, trying to justify God. And he says this in the middle of it, I also don't believe that God intended to destroy all life on earth with the great flood that appears in most world cultures' mythologies, including the Bible. So he includes the Bible with most cultures' mythologies. That's fascinating. And then, obviously, he's not taking sin seriously. He goes on to say, reading the Bible requires some effort to understand when the writers inject their own opinions and when God's intentions actually sneak out. So the Bible, then, is a place where God's opinions are kind of lurking and we hope they sneak out according to him. In the Bible, parentheses, the part that Jews, Muslims, and Christians all read, comma, Genesis, there is a story about a man called Noah. The dude was supposedly pretty righteous, not much malice about him. The rest of the world, though, was a different story. Contrary to what is often preached, what set God off was that human beings had filled the world with violence. It was not sexual immorality, rock music, marijuana use, beer, or cussing that made God so upset. It was violence. And he goes on and on to write. He represents liberal theology. Leans way to the left. Low view of scripture has zero to do with politics. Get that out of your minds when we say liberal and conservative. Everything to do with one's view of scripture. And this is typically found in liberal seminaries, liberal colleges, Uh, In universities, um, very low view of Scripture. And then I have some other quotes that really I think are the other spectrum. Listen to these. When you are tempted to get discouraged, remind yourself that according to God's Word, your future is getting brighter. You are on your way to a new level of glory. You may think you've got a long way to go, but you need to look back at how far you've already come. You may not be everything you want to be, but at least you can thank God you're not what you used to be. Or, same author, start calling yourself healed, happy, whole, blessed, and prosperous. Stop talking to God about how big your mountains are and start talking to your mountains about how big your God is. Or, same author, you have to learn to follow your heart. You can't let other people pressure you into being something that you are not. Has he not read Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, and who can know? 
If you want God's favor in your life, you must be the person he made you to be, not the person your boss wants you to be, not even the person your parents or your husband wants you to be. You can't let outside expectations keep you from following your own heart. He continues, it's our faith that activates the power of God. (laughs) Really? Not how I came to Christ. He keeps going, don't just accept whatever comes your way in life. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. Don't simply settle for what your parents had. You can go further than that. You can do more, have more, be more. Well, that's true unless your parents were wealthy, but God called you to the middle of Africa to live in poverty and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then perhaps this isn't the case. If it's not meeting a need, turn it into a seed. Remember, we will reap what we sow. When you do good for other people, that's when God is going to make sure that his abundant blessings overtake you. All of these from Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. All of them. And some of you thought, that it was a good use of time this week to tune in to him. He represents an entire arena of theology that is sweeping America, Central and South America, many parts of Africa, prosperity theology, health and wealth. As a matter of fact, if we rewind back to my visit, the young man sitting across the window from me said, Jerry, somebody sent me another book. The author's last name was Caps. I don't know who this guy may be. And he said, he talked about just speaking things into existence. And he said, I thought that can't be right. Well, yeah, if it could, you wouldn't be sitting over there. You'd be out. Just speak it and it will happen. And and, and just think it and it will come your way. If that were the case, some of you wouldn't have driven those Joe Lappy cars you drove in here today. It'd be nicer than what you're driving, right? There'd be so many things. This theology, uh, here's what happens. And here's what I see time and time again. It promises you what God never promises you. He never promises you that life will always be good, that life will never bring you burdens, will never bring you difficulty. We can stand around this room and give testimony to the reality of pain in life. Or consider the mother who called me years ago, years ago, whose son was attending a church just like this in Greenville, Redemption World Outreach Center. Her son and wife miscarried, went to meet with the elders of that church who said to her, if you guys had had more faith, this would not have happened to you. And they were devastated. 
I said, Jerry, what must we do? Here's the criteria. Can what you're reading, what you're hearing, answer those questions? Let me pray for us, Lord. Jesus, anything that removes you from the center of our thought, of our desire, anything that distracts from the gospel, bring to our minds, take off the cover, reveal it to be what it is, and we will praise you and glorify you, and we will sift what shouldn't be and we will absorb what ought to be and in so doing become who you've called us to be protect these sheep from those who sneak in hidden reefs rainless clouds May they think biblically and with Christ-centeredness. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. And God's people say, amen.